0: Business schools are ideally placed to be the nexus between government, business and civil society in shaping a collective response to our most critical challenges. This November 15th through 17th, join the Global Business School Network for GBSN Beyond, virtual conference reimagined. With the focal themes of humanitarian logistics, climate change, healthcare and human rights, GBSN Beyond will bring together members of academia, business government and civil society to collectively discuss challenges and develop solutions. Keynote speakers include former Malawian President Dr Joyce Banda, Michael Arena, Head of Global Talent for Amazon Web Services, Yulia Olofsson, Head of Human and Child Rights at the Inca Group, the holding company of IKEA, and Carl Manlin, Vice President of Social Impact for Visa to name just a few. Claim your virtual seat and register today at gbsn.org slash beyond hello everyone welcome to another episode of the global business school network podcast i'm rob member it's an especially busy time of year in academia as half of the world prepares for the final quarter of the academic calendar while the other half settles into the start of a new semester So thanks for taking time to listen. In today's episode, GBSN CEO Dan Leclerc is in conversation with Wilfred Van Honecker about his latest book, Rough Diamonds. Based on over 40 years in education around the world, Wilfred shares in the book and in this conversation some of his observations, questions and reflections on formal education as we know it and have come to accept it. And in doing so, In Rough Diamonds provides a critical look at what formal education has morphed into. It paints, according to Wilfried, a worrisome picture. Here's Dan to start the conversation.
1: It is nice to see you Wilfried and and I've been looking forward to this conversation. I hope we cover a, a lot of territory as it relates to the book, but it's it's got a lot, so I, there, we'll leave some things off the table, I'm sure. Wilfrid, you know, the, the one thing that occurs to me is that the journey, in your case, is as important as the message in some ways. And so I, I wanted to review, uh, not only for the two of us, but for our listeners and viewers, your journey. Now, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a stab. I'm, I'm going by memory here, so please help me out where I I may be missing a piece. But you started your life and in many ways your your career in Belgium. You mm-hmm. went to uh, religious school, Catholic school, um, mm-hmm. and then you. Also went to university in Belgium, in Antwerp if I remember correctly. Studied Mm a a subject that I'm quite fond of as well, economics. And then Mm -hmm. went from university in Belgium right to the US. Uh, Went to Purdue University for a PhD program in economics and studied, was it econometrics there? Uh, Mathematical statistics. Mathematical statistics. And that's where you had your first exposure to actually teaching. And I imagine that was pretty important in the way you thought about the book. Then you went to Columbia uh, Graduate School, uh, Business, Graduate Business School in New York. And that was, I think, a pretty significant experience in your life by itself. But what struck me, at least when I recall reading about your journey, is uh, what happened next? And that was the invitation to go to China. Right. Uh, and uh, I think when you went to China, you spent some time not only in some of the bigger cities, but you went to Tibet. I imagine that was quite an experience, especially at the time. But you also got exposed to the China-Europe Management Institute, which became an important part of your life later on, right? And, mm-hmm. uh, That's great. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in fact, I think from there, that experience with CEMI, you went then to INSEAD. Did I get that right? To yes, INSEAD? from Colombia. Yeah, Columbia. yeah mm-hmm. from Colombia to NCAD, right? So back and forth mm-hmm. with China, working with mm-hmm. uh, Chinese executives, as well as with the Institute, and then went to NCAD. And from NCAD, you went to Hong Kong? Correct.
2: When the University of Science and Technology was created in Hong Kong, you know, Hong Kong, was looking, the Hong Kong government was looking for ways to increase the number of seats in uh, undergraduate programs. Mm -hmm. They had the decision to make either to double the size of Hong Kong U or to create a new university. And uh, fortunately they, they decided to create a new university. And the business school was basically put together with the help of the Anderson school at UCLA. So it's through the UCLA people that reached out to me because they knew my interest in China and my academic credentials. So they said, Wilford, why don't you come to Hong Kong and build the marketing department? And that's what I did because I I could sit at the doorstep. Today, it's actually inside China. It's not quite the doorstep anymore, but uh, I could sit at the doorstep of China, but still have both feet in the academic world because this was still very early on in my you know academic career, and I was quite hesitant getting into an administrative role very early on. So uh, I, I felt that I still had to build my academic credibility, uh, you know, write some more papers that uh, maybe five or six people in the world could read. But at that time, I thought it
1: was important to establish that credibility. Well, that doorstep is is quite important because if I remember correctly, your next step was back to what had become SEEDS, the China, Europe, International Business School. Uh, From your initial experience, you went from Hong Kong University of Science and Technology to SEEDS. From SEEDS, your next step was to Moscow? Or did I miss a step? Yeah, right. <laughs> to help start the um, Moscow School of Management Skokovo. I'm seeing a, a theme emerge I didn't think about when I was reflecting on uh, some of your experience, but these are all new institutions.
2: New institutions in difficult environments, and all of them, which I think is important and which you will probably you'll get to later on as, as you string out my my track
1: <laughs> on the world is that all of them were independent business schools. None of them were part of a university. Oh, well, that's interesting because that that, that does, I think, uh, bear on some of your ideas. Um, Absolutely. Then from from um, Moscow, you went back to Hong Kong, if I remember correctly from
2: from moscow i went and i took a year off and i went to to sit at home in france ah. to sort of uh, you know defrost and uh, but also to you know think you know to sort of roll the tape back on my experience in russia to kind of because this was really a very you know fast 5 years building something extraordinary And and when you're part of it, so many things happen. You don't have time to think about (laughs) the mistakes you made, uh, the learning and and always found it very important to kind of take a step back. So uh, I I left Russia. Uh, I went to France, sit in the countryside and just kind of reread the the Russian literature to try to understand the Russian soul Uh, and uh, so that I could try to make sense of what had happened.
1: Your experience, that's great. But you you talk about pressing pause in the book and I imagine your experience in the countryside is a a strong part of that. But then you went to Beirut, right? Mm -hmm. The the American University of Beirut. That also was a meaningful experience, I'm sure. And then uh, you spent some time on sabbatical at MIT, reflecting after that. This is quite Correct. a journey. I think uh, everyone's getting the point that you know, for for me, just you know, reflecting on a career in so many different places with so many different um, opportunities. You you talked about some of the similarities between them, but of course, the context being very different in each case. And I just think it's important for, for everyone to know. Who I'm talking with, you know, I could have started with your titles and where you've been, but the the journey. No, the ju- the important. journey
2: is very important. I mean, it's you know the. I, mean, I I was never a person for titles or anything. I mean, it's it's more important about what you do. When you get a title, it gives you a platform, and what is more important is what do you do with that platform. And uh, I've been very fortunate actually to have all these opportunities. And maybe this is what you, you will get to, is it, 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 it's in a way linked to one of the core messages on the importance of variance in learning, yeah. right? Yeah, we I mean, are gonna uh, get to that. <laughs> I, I was all over the place, uh, which gave me a, you know, an, an incredible opportunity to learn, reflect, experiment, you know, try things and so on, and uh, and I, you know, as, as I write in the book, uh, unless you're willing to learn yourself, you have no business being in education, because you cannot instill values of learning in others, unless you're willing to get out of your own
1: comfort zone and, and, and learn and challenge yourself. Well, let's play up on that a little bit, because one of the, the things that struck me immediately as I read the book was the the chapter on your basic beliefs because that's where now the the cover made sense and the title began to make sense to me a little bit right you know when you read a, a book about education you expect a title that says something like you know 10 reasons why we're failing our children or you know, rethinking <laughs> higher education for the 21st century. <laughs> you, you expect a title like that. But the title right. of your book is Rough Diamonds. And, and in this chapter, you talk about you talk about um, two things, that we're, we're all diamonds in the rough, right? Mm-hmm. And then you also talk about the, the second fundamental belief, and, and, and that is anyone with a learning mindset should have an opportunity to develop uh, at an affordable price in some sense. Right. I want to explore this rough diamonds because the metaphor to me, uh, I had not thought about much, but tell us mm-hmm. about this metaphor and why you, why you titled the book, Rough Diamonds. The, the, the original title, I mean, it, it
2: was not, you know, I wasn't gonna, you know, do the, you know, 10 criticisms of education and so on. I, I was not interested in criticizing anything. I, I wanted to make some observations. And this has, this is a book that's been percolating for a very long time in my mind. Uh, you know, given my experience, you think things you observe. So, you know, the, the original title was just reflections on how we educate future generations. And then uh, my publisher said, Wilfred, you're a marketing guy. This doesn't sound very, (laughs) you know, exciting. Can you do something uh, more exciting? And and then I realized, I use the metaphor in the book, because I do believe, and certainly all the students I've worked with and colleagues, they they all have something that, uh, you know, nature endowed them unfortunately, many of them don't get to develop it or never realize they have. So I, 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 and I thought it was very important early in the book on the one hand, as you already made clear to, you know people understand where I'm coming from, my experience. So, because obviously when you make observations you make them through the lens of your own experience. And uh, so, you know, that was important. The other, I thought it was very important to basically lay out my fundamental beliefs, because when you start then thinking and reflecting on education, it's gonna be anchored in certain beliefs, right? And and one of them was that, I do think we're all born with something, right? That needs to be discovered, uh, that needs to be identified, uh, whose richness needs to be recognized, and that can be developed to its full potential, okay? And uh, actually that metaphor came to me from looking at the opposite of what education is doing. I thought that, you know, like, and, and I realized myself, right, I mean, as a professor, I never got a letter from a Dean saying, you know, look at this student, this is a great student. There's something special about this student, all, the memos or letters or emails I got was always about, this person is this dyslexic, so he needs, he or she needs extra time on the test. This person is this, this. So the overemphasis on deficiencies, okay? And, and, and this is how I started thinking about diamonds because every rough diamond has deficiencies, but the focus is never on deficiencies. The focus is on potential. So one studies diamonds and, uh, you know, carefully, then to make sure that the cut does not emphasize the deficiencies, but brings out the brilliance in the stone despite of the deficiencies. Uh, Of course, you know, being from Belgium uh, and Antwerp being the diamond capital of the world and still all the most valuable rough stones are cut in Belgium. So uh, that, that came into, in, into place too. So, uh, because I, I felt that our educational system is somewhat changing, that it, it doesn't recognize or it is not looking for what is truly unique in each student and potential. And that's why later in the book I contrast this with how you know, tennis protege is, for instance, developed or any sports star oh, yeah, for that. Right, 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 right. And I use this as kind of a, 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 a counterweight or a counterpoint on what we do in education versus, uh, you know, the rough diamond, the potential. And so on. So, so this I is like sort it. of where the war came and,
1: and that's how it came into the title. And, and And I think it's pretty good. You know, I love the metaphor for lots of reasons. One is there are so many different facets, nope. I guess pun intended, but what, what I also like about it is it does demonstrate appreciation for, you know, in this debate between nature versus nurture, it's both, right, it's, you know, right. you're, we're endowed with this, this gift, but it needs right. to be developed, right, and, and the second part of your basic, I guess, your, your basic foundation, your basic beliefs was uh, learning mindset. You know, because there's responsibility on the part of the diamond as well, right? Is on the part of the, the exactly. stone, uh, the individual. And tell us about, just quickly, about the learning mindset. Uh, you know, what are the three dimensions or four dimensions? The, the way I got that into this was that,
2: I mean, many people believe that education is a, a fundamental right for everybody. Mm-hmm. And and my belief was, wait a minute, that, that right is conditional on having a learning mindset. Because if you have a group of students, and it could be executives or or young students, and half of them don't have a learning mindset, they will spoil the learning of everybody, okay? So it's very, you know, so, and uh, the, so I emphasize that because to benefit from any education, you have to have a learning mindset, okay? And the other reason I emphasized it is that parents might think that this is education's responsibility, but it's the parents' responsibility to instill that mindset because you have to have it when you get into the starting blocks of your formal education. Because if you don't have a learning mindset, you know, all education can do is to turbocharge it, to leverage it, to build on it, whatever. But you have to have that mindset. And the third point is something that I'm sure we will get into later is that a learning mindset is absolutely crucial in lifelong learning. Because lifelong learning is different from formal education. Formal education is a system that is imposed on us that we can take advantage of or not. Lifelong learning has to come from an intrinsic motivation to learn. The curiosity and understand that the reality requires you to stay curious so and that's why uh, you know it's very important early on to get that mindset parents make sure that the kids have a learning mindset that will give you you know it doesn't guarantee that you will benefit from education but at least you have the mindset to benefit from it because you have the responsibility as a student to use that mindset and that that puts you on track of really being a productive and curious lifelong learner because you have the intrinsic motivation to stay with it so i thought that was very important to sort of uh, you know counterbalance that yes we have a gift with a potential on the other hand you know we're human beings we're born with a curiosity but you know it is very important to have a learning mindset. And uh, and in fact, a lot of the thinking about that mindset came from my question, whether education, you know, actually stimulates or kills the learning mindset. A question and a and, and wonder very early on, because, and, and it's linking back to something that, uh, you, know, you, you know, you read in the book, when you look at young children, I mean, I think we are basic born discoverers. We learn, right? We're curious. Kids never play with kids of the same age until they are conditioned to do so by education. Because they are, you know, actually they, you know, we're born data scientists. We realize that learning is invariance. We're better off you know, playing with kids that are older, because we're going to learn something that kids are the same age, because same age is like, you know, looking in the mirror, where learning with older kids different is looking through a window and experience and grow from there. Okay, so, and I think you, you, there is there is an, an, an ingredient of a learning mindset that we're born with, but then it has to be nurtured by parents. And uh, many parents that read the book have asked me, they said, well, Fred, well, uh, you know, w- what can we do? And I'm thinking like, boy, y- you're know, your parents, you have kids, you didn't think about this. <laughs> so, uh, and, and actually one of the thoughts has been to, uh, and I've explored the idea of writing a book together with my wife on what to do, because I understand that you know, parents are a little bit lost about how do you nurture curiosity in a child? How do you nurture and encourage them to experiment? Because it's, you know, a, a, a lot of the rigid behavior of, of parents and discipline might be counterproductive. So how do you balance discipline, but at the same time, not kill the ingredient and, and, and you know, so that you're born with this, this natural curiosity, the, the, the discovery, that needs to be nurtured because, I mean, to me, you know, the, the people that will survive in the long term are the ones that have a learning mindset
0: because well. the future
2: is not about knowing, but it's about ability to learn and ability to unlearn, relearn, question yourself and, 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 and have that intrinsic motivation
1: to stay with it. I'm with you on this one 100% as a parent, as an educator, uh, and you know, I've I've gained a lot from reading uh, Carol Dweck's Growth Mindset, and your learning mindset, I think, has a lot in common with with that. Now, (laughs) from these two basic beliefs about rough diamonds and about learning mindset, you're able to, I I think, capture the spirit of the book even very early on in the sense that there are when it comes to education, there are three responsibilities, right? There's, uh, one is to help identify that that gift. Right. Two is to connect that gift to a learning program that matches and nurtures uh, that uh, development. And then uh, thirdly, to do this in an affordable way. Right Which, right. you know, as you explore in the in the book, it's not always an easy thing, but we have some opportunities vis-a-vis technology. And um, you started to talk right. about uh, variance, which is, you know to me, one of the really cool parts about your book is that you're able to simplify and and really bring out the key points and uh, two or three bullets. But then you also mm-hmm. flesh things out in, in rather interesting ways. And if I had to recommend anyone to anyone uh, where to start with your book, I'd, I'd actually start with, uh, I think it's chapter four, your eight reflections. Right? It right. doesn't mean as much without your journey, doesn't mean as much without your basic beliefs, but these eight uh-huh. reflections to me are, are, are interesting. We, we don't have time to talk about them all. And you've mm-hmm. already talked a little bit about variance, which I, I, I'm a big believer in. Everything that we do, for example, at GBSN, we believe that uh, innovation, new ideas, uh, creativity, learning, all of that derives from diversity, right? Right. rather than from homogeneity. And, and your experience in different contexts over the years, I think, is a, is a really good um, example about that. But let's, mm-hmm. let's go to the second one that you've listed because you know mm-hmm. it's, it wasn't to me immediately obvious as variance was, and that's distance. right? Mm. Uh, tell us about this reflection that you had on distance because to me it, it had nothing to do with Euclidean geometry. It has nothing to do with the map, right? But it has a lot to do with what, what is our core responsibility as teachers.
2: Well, it, 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 it has a lot to do with, um, you know, core responsibility and also uh, passions that motivate learning, okay? And there are sort of two aspects uh, where this distance that I write about in the book. And and, and one is that over time, uh, formal education, we have created more and more distance between knowledge creation and knowledge dissemination. So that, you know, very few students actually have access to teachers, faculty that actually created the knowledge that they convey. Uh, so, and, and, it, and in effect, fact creating, you know, if you go back in history, you know, the Roman times, Greek times, it's the teachers were the thinkers. So actually the students could touch the great minds that developed the knowledge and they could align their learning process with the the thinking process that these, uh, you know, great minds follow to to come at knowledge, okay? So, you know, so, uh, and I felt that, You know, this is something that, you know, when I I look back, I don't write write about it in the book, but when I was in the PhD program and I worked with Frank Bass, my advisor, I got to work with, with a great mind in modeling and that is sort of, you know, he wasn't the greatest teacher, but just the passion and how he went about his research had a lot more impact on my learning and the values that I walked away from that than, uh, you know, a typical teacher, right? So, 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 so it's, it's sort of distance that prevents students today from being exposed to the passion of discovery. Because what happens is that, I mean, you know, mo- most teachers, faculty teach things, they learn something. So they, they're just a messenger in between. Most teachers, faculty don't even know where the knowledge was created, who created that the context in which. But if you are, you know, like if you listen to a Nobel laureate explaining what they work on, you see the passion and they will explain how they got there to the knowledge, all the dead alleys, that end alleys they walked into <laughs> and back and 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 that just gives perspective and depth that a typical teacher who know only knows the end stage of the knowledge cannot give. So I think there is a depth of learning that we have lost. that is the result from this, you know distance. And it's sort of, you know an interesting question, uh, something that I'm sure you are well aware of, and you know, everybody in business school is aware of the challenge that deans and myself had is, you know, faculty who do research for faculty who do teaching. And I always felt that kind of, these are very, this is dual track. These are different worlds, uh, you know, different skills, different competencies, uh, different award mechanisms. So keep them separate. But in writing the book, I realized that it is important for students to be exposed to people who do research because they understand, they learn about scientific discovery, they learn about, you know, curiosity, how knowledge is not an endpoint, but is an answer to a question that raises four or five more questions. So it's a process. I think it's very important and particularly for lifelong learning that we all realize it's, it's a journey. It's not something learning and you're done. I know this. You, so, and, and, so if you're exposed to a person who discovers primary knowledge and works on that, you get exposed to that. Uh, in the process, you get exposed to all, you know, what science is all about. What the rigid standards of scientific discovery are, and you learn techniques and tools that will help you in your own infoliteracy, because this is something that I write about in the book too. We, we are now bombarded with information, quote and quote, left and right, and uh, you know the, I mean, online you cannot make a distinction between an opinion, a fact, you know. Now we have alternative reality facts, what, what have you? So in, in terms of lifelong learning, where we, which will intrinsically be motivated, we have to have the skills capability that we can intelligently tap into information around us. So we will need the basic info literacy, and being exposed to the process of science discovery helps that. So that's sort of One element. The the other element of distance is the distance between exposure to knowledge and learning. I think, um, I mean, when I I realized that, you know, I was, my formal education was 16, 17 years. I I went to school very fast from grade one. And when I was 25, I was a professor. And uh, which of course is another problem of academics because most of my students were older than I was when I started at Columbia, but that's a different thing. But, you know, I realized that maybe, you know, I'm a slow learner uh, because I need to think. I never learned anything sitting in the class. I had to listen, take notes, absorb, get the knowledge and then go back and reflect on it, think about it. So my learning was a distance away, physical and in time from my exposure to knowledge. And I and, and, and I think this is I'm, I'm not, I think this is probably true for a lot of people. And I point that out in the book because I find that a lot of schools, universities have become very busy beehives, which is totally the opposite of a relaxed environment that one needs to reflect and really learn. Now, when I use the term learn, I, this is higher order learning, really not just recording knowledge and being able to spit it back like a Google search engine, but really being able to creatively work with it and think about it and and internalize it. And I think that this is sort of uh, another you know, distance that we have created because as, as I, you know, put it bluntly in the book, I think education has outsourced learning. Uh, We've created a system where we don't really check whether students learn. You know, we just check whether they, with the right search words, they can spit something back we recognize, which is basically, you know, Google search engine. We do not check at all whether there's learning. And I, and I think one of the things that will come back to haunt us is that uh, we need to start checking on return on human potential. So, coming back on, you know, rough diamonds and so on, because this is, I mean, you know, for your days at ACSB and so on, accreditation and so on, never checks whether there's actual learning. It checks the process. Right. So, assuming that if the process is great, the quality, of the outcome is there, but there is no test drive. It's like, you know, you look at the, the assembly line for a car, but you don't test drive it because you assume that if the assembly line works perfect, the car should run. Well, maybe, maybe not. So, 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 so distance sort of when I was thinking about it, sitting in the French countryside was on the one hand, The distance we have created between the creation of the knowledge and its dissemination to novices that are exposed to the new knowledge. And then a distance between that exposure and then learning that
0: knowledge. We'll be right back. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Stanford Graduate School of Business called Grit and Growth, which focuses on entrepreneurs from Africa and South Asia. You'll hear stories of challenge and triumph while getting juicy insights from Stanford's faculty on how to build amazing businesses. They've done episodes on acquisitions in Africa, running a family business, raising capital in India, and how to manage our mindset during these turbulent times. It's a chance to hear about recent discoveries, get practical business tips, and learn proven leadership strategies from some of the world's best thinkers and operators. Listen and subscribe to Grit and Growth wherever you get your podcasts. Leeds University Business School is a leading business school in the heart of the UK. The school is recognised in global league tables and is triple accredited by AACSB, EQUIS, and Amber, and delivers undergraduate, masters, MBA, PhD, executive and professional education and online study to over 5,000 students from around 100 countries. Through collaboration with institutions and businesses internationally Leeds University Business School enhances the student experience and produces cutting-edge research ensuring its graduates are making a positive impact on society and the world of business. So why Leeds? Its interconnectivity between education, policy and industry enables the school to drive the business agenda. And their valuable partnerships in the UK and across the globe provide a wealth of opportunities for students, academics and businesses. Visit business.leads.ac.uk to find out more. And now, back to the conversation.
1: We've touched on a, a several other of your, your your eight reflections you talked a little bit about and that. Uh, discussion about not only distance but about outsourcing that we don't really assess the change the meaningful change that that happens but you also mentioned habitat and the busy right. beehive and you know I do have a question about that but I, I also want to uh, tell our listeners that one critical element of this habitat is we've built it for to center on the teacher more than the student and we'll, we'll right. come back to this in a bit, but when I think about your your busy beehive and I think about your variance, you know, to me there's there's a tension there. There's you know this this need for reflection, right? That's perhaps more conducive. Um, or perhaps a, a quieter, more reflective environment is more conducive. But this idea of diversity in creating knowledge through that connection do you give up anything or do you gain anything by that busy beehive that relates to this uh, variance and um it seems to me like there's some trade-offs there i mean there, there are trade-offs absolutely and uh
2: i'm not sure actually that we fully capitalize it on an education okay i mean uh, one of the things i write about is uh, the learning I observed in um, co-working spaces, incubators and so on around the university, where people, you know, you have the same diversity, but people sit in smaller groups and much more relaxed environments, learning in real time. You know, I rarely saw a light bulb come on in a student in the classroom or with an executive. But when I was at MIT, sort of roaming around Cambridge in these co-working spaces, you know, inc- accelerators, what is it? I, I constantly saw light bulbs
1: going off. It's okay, that, so the need that distance concept, right? It's the, you know, we we're, we're linking creation to learning through this, co- right. this, uh, now, this environment. I, I think yeah. bring up a very important point because, you know, variance is important. The
2: question is, how do we leverage the variance in a relaxed setting that it is conducive to learning, one thing, and how do we integrate it in the learning process? Because one of the things is not, on, it's not only important to be exposed to variance. You have to use it as a tool in learning, right? I mean, I, I write about a little bit sort of, uh, you know, what when we created the MBA program in Russia, a kind of, you know, we we maximized variance. We had students of very different profiles and we put them in, forced them in teams to work together. And so they they had to, you know, instead of, you know, you go to Harvard and, uh, well, every team is an A team at Harvard. So, (laughs) you know, but the learning is in working with A, B, C people and create an A team there is very little learning in starting with an AP. There is, there is learning in the sense that everybody is gonna to wanna to be a leader, but, you know, so, so th- 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 there is tension. So I think, you know, and, and I think the future of education is, is, is a combination of exposure to variance, you know, being bombarded, but then having a, network or a framework or a corner where you can go back and think about it, think about it collectively, individually, in group, Uh, because I I see learning in the future a combination of individual, intelligent, creative parts, big groups and so on so that you don't lose the variance, you don't lose the dynamic that, you know, and, and the fireworks that naturally, you know, variance sets off, but you have to have a, a, an environment that enables learning from those fireworks and,
1: you know, people not just going and running. I love how these things come together in an example or a question that you pose about uh, learning to cook. Um, and right. I, uh, the, the question about, you know, being in a sort of a, uh, classroom environment, even if it has stoves and things like that, and with a qualified chef at the front, or um, apprenticing with an experienced chef, and all of these ideas I see coming together in that set of choices, and it's it's, it's not exactly um, obvious which one is the right one. It depends on mm-hmm. the diamond, I suppose, the diamond in the rough, but in your case, you're a big believer in this apprentice kind of experience, it seemed to me, with that example. Um, and I think that reflects in some of the other things that you talked about. Am I correct? It's one model and one element,
2: clearly. Um, you know, I'm I'm a believer in bottom-up learning, not top-down. And the, uh, the reason I got into that was, as I write in the book, as a dean in business school, I became quite concerned, particularly looking where we're going in the future, that in a lot of courses, we were teaching recipes, and that knowledge was being distilled in problems and solutions. And basically, we were teaching students to identify the problem and that the recipe, a matching exercise. And the concern I had with that, and and this is where the apprentice uh, sort of element comes in, is that we short-circuit thinking because if you teach recipes, people don't have to think anymore. And this is the challenge I had in writing the book because I didn't want to write a cookbook. I didn't want to say, okay, do this, do this, do this. I wanted people to think, you know, think, (laughs) you know, if you don't think, you're not going to learn. You don't learn unless you think and reflect. So I thought it was very important. So when you, you know, when you take a cooking class top down with somebody teaching you recipes, there's not much thinking going on. All you do is basically mentally recording. What do I do now? How many, you know, how much salt, how many eggs, this or that? There is no thinking that can be, you know, creative in any way. If you go with a cook and an apprentice and you go roll, and it's more than an apprentice, if you go to you know the fresh market in the morning and you look at what's available and you start with ingredients, you you start learning from a process of you know bottom up of sort of, you know, it starts with creativity, right? It's sort of the 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 artistic part and it may and and and, and it stretches your mind. It doesn't force you immediately on, okay, we're gonna make an omelet. You need so many eggs, you use this pan, and this is how hot the, you know, so the, the, this, is, this is very limiting. And particularly when, uh, you know, again, going in the direction of lifelong learning, it's all about expensive learning. You know, learning that in the process of learning, you learn right? I mean, uh, I just wrote something on because, you know, parents ask me, should kids learn to code? And I say, yes, not because coding is going to be the only job left in the future, not at all, but coding teaches you to think in a structured way because it forces you to break down a problem in pieces because you have to teach, you have to teach the computer how to solve the problem. So you have to structure it. So analytic thinking. So here is, you learn a skill, but it, but the skill is not that important. It's what you learn in the process of acquiring that skill, because you learn another skill that is much more powerful and useful. And lifelong learning of, you know, analytic thinking, structured thinking, yeah, thinking you. about, you know, problems. And it's exactly like, you know, when I went to high school, probably, and you're a younger generation, but we all had to study algebra, and we were wondering, why the hell do we have to learn algebra? Because none of our parents ever solved any equation in any of their jobs. So what is this? But algebra is, is exactly the same way why we want kids to learn coding. It teaches you to think analytically, very structured way. And I think that is important. So if you go, then... Back to, you know, recipe teaching and recipe learning. This takes the fun of thinking out. And it takes the the, the ability to creatively think beyond it out. Plus, as I put in the book, which I think is very important, any knowledge that can be distilled in a recipe, I can train a
1: neural network to do that. So you're out of the job in no time. Well, you've taken us into uh, two other reflections (laughs) quite nicely, and one of them about the model, and you haven't said this explicitly, but in the book, uh, you describe uh, the industrial factory model as, as sort of this evolution that puts us in this position of transmitting recipes more than facilitating learning. But you also brought us into technology and these things come together, I think in the chapters that follow pretty nicely. Did you want to just mm-hmm. add a comment before we, I want to, I want to explore this lifelong learning uh, question Good. again, and then think about Good. the model and the alternatives that you put.
2: You know, the, the model, industrial factory model is basically what is important there is that the observation I want to make is that formal education has evolved into a system that is driven by the business model right? Education is very expensive. It's uh, labor intensive, it's capital intensive. So in any service industry that has high fixed cost is going to standardize. So what we see in education is standardized delivery. And that's how we get into one size fits all the industrial factory model, which I think is totally the opposite of what we should do and what will come with technology. So that's sort of the, the model. There the are two aspects. One is, you know, that we all have our education early on, and that's what's going to get us into lifelong learning. I mean, as I said, by the time I was twenty-five, my former education was done, and then I had about, you know, forty-five years in, in uh, academia, where I could kind of, you know, leverage the knowledge. I mean, I learned in the process, but still. Uh, this model of getting all our knowledge up front and then having a productive career on the basis of that the days of that uh, model are numbered because uh, shelf life of knowledge is decreasing exponentially and this is how we get into lifelong learning that's what motivates lifelong learning we have we have no choice but to the the technology will come in and i will put it very simple i didn't i didn't put it that directly, but my, my thinking is now, I'm writing a book on lifelong learning actually, and how it will evolve or how I see it evolve is that technology will make learning a data science. And actually with the pandemic, all of us going online, the infrastructure is in place to collect data continuously and make uh, learning a data science. Because we have to go back to, if we want to go back to, you know, a rough diamond, the skill we have, and then link a learning journey with the gift a person has to bring out that potential, we have to adapt the learning. And adapting means that we have uh, an intelligence to recognize, in an individual, what their gift is, what their learning modality is, the learning context, and so on. And I think this is where intelligent technology will come into place. Uh, this, is, th- this is not where we are in education today. We basically use technology to sort of kind of increase the footprint. But I think uh, education will fundamentally, technology will make the you know, learning journeys intelligent. And that is the future of education and the backbone of business schools. Business schools have to realize that they need to create digital learning ecosystems, put their students as uh, digital twins, track them, and provide an intelligent backbone for their learning career. Because the challenge we're all going to have is we know we're going to have to learn all our lives what should we learn when and how and who is going to provide those answers
1: that's a really good so, question you know it's interesting you're coming to us from this broad set of experiences including the U.S. and China and, and Russia but this interesting question that you you pose throughout the book it's sort of embedded with everything you talk about bundling for example and you talk about dissemination and and you talk about the learning mindset, but who in a world with lifelong learning with the infrastructure in place, I hope you're not talking about the algorithm shaping your path forward, or are you talking about giving the, the learners the tools and the data, right? Because the data science, you know, the artificial intelligence, uh, we can embed a lot of bias in them, right? First of all, we have to be careful when we talk about uh, artificial
2: intelligence. Uh, what we see today is mostly uh, numerical intelligence. So it's pure data driven. The future is uh, neurosymbolic AI, which is much more open black box with human input. because actually we are beginning to realize that AI is actually an important learning. tool, And I give an example, actually, in the book you know, we're very early on. What I'm thinking of is that we are all going to need intelligent coaching about what to reskill, how to upskill, when and in what way. And uh, this is uh, my thinking now is that we're going to have to, you know, broaden the bandwidth of learning. And let me, you know, sort of, I don't, you know, this is something that's come out of the book since is that I'm I'm beginning to really question work-based education. And since business schools are professional schools, a very important question there. And I think that the, the future of business schools is to get away from professional education and replace it with lifelong learning. Because otherwise, See, the reason for that is that I believe, and you can challenge me on that, every profession has, you know, parts that intelligent algorithms will be able to do. So they can become obsolete or will be radically radically restructured. You know, about five years ago, I got a demonstration of the IBM Watson system. And there were two senior consultants communicating with the intelligence system about a client acquisition problem. And what I learned from that is that everything Watson did is what junior consultants do. This is what, I don't know if it's still the number one job for MBA graduates, but uh, in my days, they all wanted to go to consulting companies, McKinsey and so on, Who's Alan? Junior consultants, the first five years, the job they do, intelligence systems can already do. So think of that, right? You look at radiologists, right? I mean, with uh, medical imaging technology, basically a pattern recognition, deep learning. Do we still need them? Well, today we need them to label the pictures, you know, so we can train the algorithms. But And an interesting aspect there's another side of work-based education is that in all these professions, you could be replaced by a technology that none of these people will ever be exposed to or know anything about. Right? Like, uh, you know, parole boards, you use AI systems to decide whether to release an ex-convict back into society or not. You look at any curriculum in any law school, none of them talk about AI and how it potentially could change their job and and the law profession. So, and this brings back, uh, you know, and and this is sort of something that uh, I'm sure you've thought about this. And and this was sort of the big motivation in writing the book is, what should we be teaching in business schools today? Because I believe that 60, 70% of what we teach, intelligent systems can do. Actually, there were departments we don't need anymore. And digital transformation will point that out. We're we're in for a rude awakening in the reality, but because the future is much more collaborative, right? I mean, I I use the illustration of uh, a pilot in modern airline, you don't need a pilot anymore. These planes can fly themselves. Okay, but we have a pilot, okay? So that's the CEO, right, in the future. Uh, if they have, you know, six, seven direct reports, two or three of them in the future will be intelligent agents. They have to be able in real time to decide whether they can trust the system, rely on it, whether it was trained properly or not. I do not know of any business school that teaches senior executives how algorithms work, and they all rely on it already. So much buying and selling is already done you know, algorithmically, right, online. So there is a, a an interesting question about are we developing human intelligence that will be able to complement efficiently and effectively artificial intelligence that requires us to understand artificial intelligence today, what it can do and not do. And on the basis from that, go back and say, okay, now this is what we need to train people to be able to effectively and efficiently collaborate with these. But we're spending our time talking about leadership and soft skill development. By the way, you know, these intelligent systems can do a lot of things, much faster, much better error with no
1: human drama.
2: We don't need soft skills for these systems. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's an interesting world that you described. And I agree with much of what you said. And as we go forward, you know, I think one of the things that you're talking about is that when it comes to application of technology, and AI, regardless of its approach, that transparency right. becomes an opportunity and helping the student to develop the learning mindset and discover their own pathways and not being so teacher-centric. You know, right now, I guess the challenge often in higher education is that we we predetermine the path, right? It's this bundle, we bundle this knowledge together and give it to you in the form of a degree More and more technology will allow us to unbundle that, right? Unbundle, make it more adaptive, make it more uh, continuous and effective.
2: Let me put it in a very simple way. And this might, you know, people who are listening to the uh, podcast might find this interesting. At the core, right? I mean, you know, business schools have lots of stakeholders, right? I mean, you have uh, companies and alumni and so on. But at the core, you're an educational institution. So your basic responsibility is educating students. Now, at the core, this is a two-sided market. On the one hand, to the way we do it now, is bundled knowledge. On the other end, we have aggregated demand because we put students together in classes. And we link the two in a bureaucratic predetermined fashion. All these three elements are gonna be exposed to digital transformation. By the way, we all in our business schools have faculty teaching us, telling companies how they should change. And no business school is thinking about how it is going to change their own business because unbundling is coming. I mean, we already have micro-credentials, nano, you know, it, it's natural because because the bundling now is around disciplines. We will go to a re-aggregation, re around talent and individuals because that's what it needs to be. You know, the education you should get has to be different from mine because we're different people. We come with, you know, we, we're different wall stones. We have a different character and so on. So we will see an unbundling and then a rebundling. And the question is, who is gonna pay the aggregation role, right? And uh, I think it's interesting, business schools teach the case studies on uh, like Apple ecosystems. They should look at it and see how they can replicate that model in education, because that's what is coming. So we're gonna see an unbundling. There's also a question about you know, aggregated demand. Why should we sit in a class? I think some learning will be individual. Some learning will be in parts, parts that are intelligently creative, that systems will say, you should work with that person, that person, that person, because that's where the learning is going to be. Then in bigger groups, you'd see all those formats. And then we'll see an intelligent matching, right? In terms of, you know, pick and choose. And, and that's sort of where I see the support that schools and educational institutions need to bring, particularly business schools, they, they, they need to create digital learning ecosystem, walk in the students and alumni, and start collecting data and build an intelligent backbone, right? So that they can advise and, you know, and suggest you should learn this for this reason at this point and so on. Because the, the, the future is not, And this is sort of coming back on on the work-based learning, because otherwise we're going to get into the cycle of uh, sort of reskilling, upskilling all the time, right? You lose your job, you upskill, then you're going to get into a different track. So we're back into this, um, what I sort of criticize a little bit, the book is sort of this, this, instead of forward looking, we're sort of backwards correcting always in education. And I think the 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 other, and this is back to bandwidth, is that we have to realize is that it's not about skills. It's about the core identity. Who are you in terms of your, you know, your rough diamond, your skill capability, and your personality? How we can combine them is a powerful entity that can then be deployed with some job-specific skilling in a strategic way continuously. I mean, the, the visualization I have is that if you look at, we have you know, innovation coming, we have uh, you know, permanent disruption, jobs will disappear, all jobs are exposed, and I think careers and jobs will, are becoming a scarce concept. At the end of the day, what is always going to be there? It's the person. Right. And the unique skill capability, because, it, you know, that what I find in business schools, we're not building on the character anymore. We're not building on the intelligence. We're sprinkling them with skill. So we're trying to fit them into job specific molds. But, you know, the strength of what comes out of the mold is what you pour in it. It's not the shape of the mold. So we have to go back to what we pour in and continuously built, you know, intelligence, personality, character, shaped that, and then supplement it with skills in a strategic way, skills that actually strengthen the core. I mean, the the, the visualization I use is like, you know, when you go into, you know, after a big storm or a forest fire and you go back into the forest, it's the strong trunks that, rejuvenate, and grow new shoots. And, you know, skilling, reskilling, job-specific development is is the shoots. It's 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 the trunk that has to be the core of lifelong learning, at least in my thinking. I'm not sure if it makes sense to you.
1: Well, I, I, I think it does. In fact, when you think about all the things that have come together from your journey, your reflections, your sort of Basic starting point for this book. Everything comes together with this lifelong learning, in my in my view, and the way we think about not only students today but alumni as we move forward, and the way technology can help. Now, there's a there's a really uh, interesting chapter that closes the book. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm going to have to tell our viewers and, and listeners that, that you have to read the book to talk about this, but it's about the business model. And if you could just give them a taste, uh, Wilfried, we'll about this business right. model that you make. Right. Two, two observations. Since you mentioned alumni and so
2: on, lifelong learning, it is very important that every educational institution, business schools, realize that lifelong learning is co-learning. It's not only the students, the alumni, it's the staff, it's the faculty, it's the deans, everybody has to learn because everybody is gonna be in the game. So the learning has to, instead of delivery vertical, it has to become you know, horizontal co-learning. So mm-hmm. I think this is important. This is another big topic. The other thing is, is the business model. I mean, just, just think of it. Education today is already very expensive. If we stretch the model we have now into lifelong learning, it would be prohibitively expensive. Nobody would be able to afford it. I mean, in the the US today, public education per student, not counting capital expenditures is $15,000 a year. So it's not only private education that's expensive, even for government. So we need to look for new business models. And there's many different ways to think of it. You know, I'm I'm a big believer in learning earnings models. And we will see this, that, you know, you pay a fee to learn. At some point, you're part of an ecosystem. You learn something, now you can contribute in a co-learning way. And as you contribute, you get paid. So the learning-earning model. This is basically how Duolingo works. This is the, you know, the language act to learn languages. So they they have a learning earnings model. The chapter you refer to, yeah, is sort of pay for success mechanisms. I had a very hard time when I wrote the book. I first thought I'm going to leave it out (laughs) because this is, it's way out, but I did it for a purpose, not that I believe this is the model we should go, but to basically show to people that creativity goes a long way. You, You can... I mean, it, we tend to be too incremental. You know, a lot of the innovation today in industry is business model innovation, it has nothing to do with technology, it's business model. Okay, so we, we need to find, if, if we wanna make education accessible and affordable, we need different models. And, uh, you know, pay for success is basically, some of the listeners might be familiar with uh, social impact bonds. It's exactly the mechanism that underlies social impact bonds. It has questions, challenges, but let's face it, we need new models. Universities, business schools better realize that fundraising world changes. When you think of the Richard Branson, Elon Musk, and Jeff Bezos, and so on, these are not very philanthropic people. They spend their money on their own projects. So a lot of the traditional sources of funding and building endowments so th- th- there are a lot of dynamics and questions that I have about the existing model. And it is clear that we need a new model to make. And I, I-, I think learning, you know, uh, technology is an opportunity to scale in, a- in an
1: affordable way. I appreciate you going back just briefly to talk about the uh, the lifelong learning model, because, you know, when. Uh, you didn't say it in these words, but it really struck me that we're moved from a sort of a one-to-many model, where the faculty is the one, the professor is the one, to a many-to-one, and that that does, right. uh, you know, move us in the direction of more expensive and and all of those things. But there are solutions to those problems that technology enables. This is great, Wilfried. You know, I know we took a little extra amount of your time for this. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I know that our uh, listeners will appreciate that. And I, mm-hmm. I do want to say just a final word about the book. It's you know, We covered a lot of territory in this discussion, in this conversation, but there's so much more. And I do encourage everyone, if they uh, can get a chance to spend some time with uh, Rough Diamonds, uh, please do so. Thank you so much, Wilfried. Okay, thank you very much.
0: A big thanks to Dan and Wilfred for that engaging conversation. Rough Diamonds, Rethinking How We Educate Future Generations by Dr. Wilfred R. Van Honecker is available now through Amazon. A big thanks to you for listening. Remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast and we hope to see you at GBSN Beyond this November. Until next time, take care.